Hi, I'm Lavinia. And I'm Kelly. Welcome to season two of There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel, their stories, their experiences told in their own voices. There's a specific kind of magic that happens when women go traveling, and the stories that spring from those experiences are diverse and limitless. Stories of harrowing escapades, quiet epiphanies, powerful connections, transformative moments, and wild possibilities. There She Goes is a storytelling podcast. It's also an invitation to escape, briefly, to some distant elsewhere with a kindred companion. We hope it offers the exact travel infusion you need right now, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a vicarious journey to hold you over till you're ready to go exploring again, or inspiration for your next adventure. We love sharing these stories and storytellers with you. So pack your bags and settle in, because here we go. Today we travel with Yukari Kane to Hokkaido, Japan, where after a kidney transplant, she skis and bathes in hot springs and attempts to make peace with a version of Japan she didn't expect to find. Yukari is an author, educator, and veteran journalist with 20 years of experience, including at the Wall Street Journal and Reuters. She is co-founder and CEO of Prison Journalism Project and author of Haunted Empire, Apple After Steve Jobs. The day her book launched in March of 2014, she was diagnosed with late-stage kidney failure. She had a kidney transplant with her sister as a donor a year later. I'm Yukari Kane reading my story, Outsider Again. I knew it was a breach in etiquette to stare at other bathers in the changing room, but I couldn't help myself. All around me, everyone was breaking almost every unspoken rule. When you take off your clothes, you aren't supposed to throw them into a cubby. You place them neatly in the basket with a bath towel draped over it. When you come back, you aren't supposed to spread out and take over the bench or cover the floor with your stuff, you take up as little room as possible so as not to disturb the others. And what happened to covering yourself modestly with a wash towel when walking around? Shinjirarenai. My train of thought was broken by Yuka, my friend undressing next to me. I can't believe it, she repeated laughing. This is so not Japan. My husband and I had left San Francisco three days earlier to ski in the northernmost island of Hokkaido because I grew up in Tokyo and we had also lived there together in the mid-2000s. Our trips back to Japan were always a kind of homecoming. Usually, we saw friends hit up our favorite restaurants and took at least one overnight trip to a hot springs inn. After a 10-hour flight, there was nothing as blissful as that first bite of sashimi or the first soak in a bath. That was when I slipped out of my American self and became Japanese again. But this visit to Japan was even more meaningful than usual because I'd gotten a kidney transplant last spring. My surgery was successful, but the past year had been an anxious one. I was now on a regimen of strong immunosuppressants that made it easier for me to fall sick. Food poisoning or a stomach flu could knock me out for a couple weeks. Even something as simple as dehydration was a big deal. In the first six months, I'd visited the emergency room twice. 
Before my transplant, I had loved traveling. I'd been everywhere from Greenland and Iceland to Bhutan and Rwanda. A map on the wall in my home was covered with white and green pins of all the places I'd visited. The white showing where I had been with my husband and the green indicating where I had gone by myself. For nearly a year, I'd stuck close to home, aside from short weekend trips or family visits, and I was developing serious cabin fever. I was desperate to feel normal again. I needed to stop being a transplant patient and go back to just being me. A trip to Japan was fairly routine by my standards, but it held the promise of more travels to come. We booked a condo in Hidafu Village in Niseko, the region's largest ski resort, and invited Yuka, a friend from Tokyo, to join us. I could hardly contain my excitement. I dreamt about the champagne powder on the mountain, ramen and sushi for lunch, and a prey ski in the hot springs baths. I couldn't wait to start living again. Hokkaido was just as I imagined it to be, with the regal Yote Mountain overlooking vast farmlands that produce some of the country's best vegetables and dairy products. At a hotel nearby, we stopped for a soba lunch. But the minute we entered the village, Japan was gone. The first people we saw were two white guys carrying skis on their shoulders. A couple hundred feet later was a family of Westerners. Dad was trying to help his two little kids from slipping and falling on the sidewalk. We passed by group after group of Westerners. As we neared the main part of town, my eyes grew wider. Every shop and restaurant sign was in English. I had known Niseko was popular with foreigners, or gaijin, as we called them in Japanese. Some years ago, Australian developers had invested in the area because it was an affordable ski destination for Aussies who didn't want to spend the money or time to travel to North America or Europe. What I hadn't expected was an Australian colony in the middle of Japan. Where were the Japanese? At our rented condo, a young Australian gaijin greeted us and briefed us on our apartment. Where's the nearest supermarket, I asked. There's a Lawson's around the corner, she said, and a Seiko Mart across the street. But those are convenience stores. What about grocery stores? I think you should be able to find most of what you need at these stores. Not a chance. I'd actually like to go to a supermarket, I said. Where would that be? Well, there's none nearby. That's impossible. Then where do the locals shop? Well, there's the max value, but you have to drive for 15 minutes. All I wanted was to browse a grocery store for the foods I had missed. It was part of my homecoming ritual. I needed to peruse the yogurt aisle, survey the produce stands, and buy some natto, the fermented soybeans we eat with rice for breakfast. Why was this so hard? When we sat down for dinner at a nearby izakaya bar that night, I was even more dismayed. I'd been dreaming of sashimi, freshly made tofu, and seasonal fried morsels of seafood and vegetables. Instead, the menu mostly included standard items, many of which you could find in a restaurant in San Francisco, and some of which you'd only see in a cafeteria. Cheese and crackers? Ugh. Edamame? Boring. Grilled shiitake mushrooms and cheese? Double ugh. 
The best dish was the fried chicken. We may have been in Japan, but this wasn't the Japan I traveled so far to reach. Now, a day later, we were at the local public baths, and Yuka and I were the only Japanese. As I took off my sweater, I snuck a peek at a brunette sprawled on a changing bench, taking a nap, au naturel. The sliding door rattled, and I glanced at the tall blonde woman striding in from the baths, barely covering herself with a towel. In the corner, two young Australian girls were laughing and chattering about their evening plans. One was pulling on her jeans. The other was still in her bra and thong as she rifled through her belongings in search of her pants. Their towels were strewn around them. Their cheeks were pink from the steam. I struggled to make sense of the scene. The rows of old plastic baskets and cubbies to put our belongings, the Japanese sign informing bathers of the health benefits of the water, and the electric fan to cool us down. They were all familiar items that reminded me of the public hot springs my parents had taken me to when I was growing up in this country. But I had also expected to see older Japanese women with their granny underwear hidden under their carefully folded elastic waist pants in their changing baskets, or rosy cheeked little girls asking their mothers if they could get juice on the way out. Feeling off kilter, I quickly removed my clothes and made my way to the baths outside. I found a corner to myself and sat down. Breathing in the cold evening air, I was comforted by the familiar smell of sulfur. As the days passed, I felt increasingly disoriented. At the cafeteria at lunch one day, a young Japanese girl behind the counter asked me in English what I would like. At first, I was offended that she didn't recognize that I was Japanese too, so I replied in Japanese. When she responded in heavily accented Japanese, I glanced at her name tag and was embarrassed to realize she was Chinese. My head filled with questions. Was I to presume everyone was a foreigner here? Was fluent English a requirement even for the Japanese? Should I be speaking in English or Japanese? What did you do if you didn't speak English? Because of my father's job, I had moved back and forth between Japan and the U.S. three times growing up. As a child, I constantly struggled to fit in. Attending school in Japan was particularly difficult because there was so much pressure to conform. My American accent during English class won me no friends. A clever hawk hides his claws, a teacher once said. As if I should pretend I couldn't speak English. As an adult, I learned to embrace my mixed cultural background and prided myself on being able to deftly navigate both cultures. Now, however, my old identity crisis was playing out in front of me like scenes from a movie. I didn't know what language to speak. I didn't know what was appropriate anymore. I felt like a foreigner in my own country. Meanwhile, Patrick and Yuka were enjoying themselves immensely. My husband's world evolved around food, so every day started with a discussion of which Hokkaido specialty he wanted to have for lunch. Should I have ikuradon, salmon roe bowl? Or maybe an unidon, sea urchin bowl? He'd muse out loud. Or maybe I could have an uni ikuradon. 
Yuka found the foreigners of the town endlessly fascinating. Omoshiroi, she would say, fascinating, as a tall, broad-shouldered kiwi fitted her for skis at the rental shop, or after a conversation with a Malaysian couple who had spent the last seven years skiing in Niseko, or standing in the middle of a sea of Australians in the lift lines. To Yuka, Niseko represented a more international Japan. This place would be so great if you wanted to study abroad but couldn't afford to, she said for the upteenth time, sipping her coffee during a mid-morning break. It's good for Japan, don't you think? As if on cue, a young Japanese cafeteria employee stopped by to see if we needed anything. Her minimal makeup and conservative ponytail were indistinctive, but her un-Japanese mannerisms caught my attention. She made direct eye contact with us when she spoke, smiled easily, and was unfazed by our curiosity about her background. She told us she'd just returned from a work-study trip in Canada, and she was working on the slopes while she awaited a visa to live in Australia. Perhaps this was a sign of a new changing Japan, one in which neither the cafeteria worker nor I had to identify strictly as Japanese or American or something else, a place where we could just be ourselves. And if it wasn't yet, perhaps it could be or should be. I felt ashamed that I had inadvertently adopted the stereotypical closed-minded Japanese perspective that tormented me when I was growing up. Not everything had to be done the Japanese way. Later that evening, in the dressing room of another hot springs bath, I was tickled by the rules posted in English that were at once foreign and Japanese. Foreign because they stated the obvious. Japanese because it was so like them to assume foreigners didn't know anything about public bathing. No bathing suits, said one. No photography, said another. Another poster illustrated the steps of how to bathe. Wash your privates before you take a dip and don't put your wash towel in the bath. A picture of a boy swimming was crossed out with a big red X. I smiled, thinking about my seven-year-old nephew in Chicago, who would totally try to swim in the bathtub. Yuka and I removed our clothes and made our way outside to the bath. As I sat down in the water, I sighed. We were all alone, surrounded by tall banks of snow that sparkled in the moonlight. The steam rose from the baths as the faint smell of sulfur wafted up our noses. I ran a finger over the scar running down my belly and checked to see if it had faded any more since the last time I looked. It was still visible, but less so. The area was only slightly darker than my skin. If I looked at it from the right angle, parts of it disappeared entirely. Kimochi, I said aloud. It feels so nice. I was finally in Japan, and I was healthy. Life was good. A few minutes later, I heard splashing and looked up to see Yuka wading over to a bunch of rocks near the wall separating the women's baths from the men's. Patrick, she called out loudly to my husband. Can you hear me? Are you there? After hearing no response, she tried again. Patrick! I tried to stop her, but I was laughing too hard. As she prepared to climb on the rock so she could peek over the fence, the sliding door connecting the outdoor and indoor baths opened and another bather entered. We both slunk down chagrined, 
but something in me had lifted. You've been listening to season two of There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's narratives are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. Be sure to tell your friends about There She Goes and follow us on your favorite platforms. And most of all, come back for more illuminating stories from around the world. Oh,